Just wanted to get that out of the way. All right. So we're in Isaiah chapter 63, and, um, and we've gone through the whole book of Isaiah all the way up until this point, all 63 chapters. We've got just a few left. And it's good to sort of position ourselves where we are. Last week, we ended off with essentially what looked like the end, the response of God's people's prayer for him to come and save them by judging the world. He, we left, um, the, so that was Isaiah 63, the beginning part. And Isaiah 63 followed this wonderful passage where God has shaped his people into a city, a city made of all tribes and peoples and languages and nations. So Zion has become international. There's not just people who have uh, Jewish genealogies. There's people of all nations who are now the sons of Abraham and and can call uh, Isaac and and Israel their father. So this is this huge city. And, And it's called the bride of Zion, the bride of the Messiah. And so we have this We have in Isaiah 62, he's shaped these people into a city. And then we have this imagery of them having watchmen on the walls and the watchmen are there and they're praying day and night, praying day and night. They're waiting, they're calling for the Messiah to come to judge the living and the dead and redeem them. And then you have Isaiah 63 and he comes. He comes in a mighty way to judge the living and the dead and he saves his people by judging the world. And now it looks like it's a step backward. A step backward when we have Isaiah 63, verse 7. It's almost like he reverses back before the Messiah comes to judge the dead. And now he's saying, I want to tell you a little bit more about what their prayers look like. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're going to be waiting a long time. And that waiting is going to be difficult. And I've already told you that they're going to be praying. And they're going to be praying continually. But I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what these prayers are going to look like. I wonder if anybody here, probably no one, it's pretty rare, has found that prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. One of the reasons prayer is hard is because we are called to walk by faith rather than by sight. Um, And so we're fighting against our flesh. But this prayer, uh, he's giving these things to us to help us to know how to pray. And one of these things we see is that he's wanting us to lift our eyes off of the things that that we see right now, just in the exact moment we're in, and to sort of look back and to see, to have a greater perspective, to almost look to heaven, to set our gaze on things that are greater, so that our hope is not merely just based on hope. We're in the middle of a difficult time. Waiting is hard. Trusting in the Lord is hard. Prayer is hard. We're not just stuck in just saying, no, no, we have to have faith just because we have to have faith. We have to have hope just because hope is, hope is the thing we, is the right thing to do. Saying, no, set your eyes on a greater vision of reality, a greater perspective. So you'll see that hope is not just the right thing to do. Hope makes a lot of sense. Trusting in the Lord makes a lot of sense. Having confidence in the Lord makes a lot of sense. If you will just go back and see a greater perspective of what God has done. And so the intention of this passage is to help God's people to pray. Let's look at our first point. We're going to get this from just the first verse here, Isaiah 63, verse 7. Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of God, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Our first point is this, 
recount the steadfast, gracious love of God in redemptive history. A nice long point, we're going to get to each part of that, because each part is really very helpful when we're thinking about how to pray. In our prayers, we're to recount the steadfast, gracious love of God in redemptive history. I want you to see the bookends of this, of this passage here, this little verse. You have the beginning and the end. This is a really helpful thing. If you're reading scripture, and you're wondering, what's the point of these things? Look for bookends, beginning and end of a verse. What are the phrases? Do you see that? Where is that? What is the words there? I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And then at the, ba- at the back end of the verse, the abundance of his steadfast love. And one of the things that we're to remember when we're praying, we pray to God, he wants us to pray to, pe- to, to him based on his love, according to his love. We're not just to pray to God or to th- see a relationship with God based on this idea of it's the right thing to do, he is the king, and we're to ask him for things. Not just this transactional relationship that you might have with somebody who is, who, who is in business with you. No, this is one that is based on love. And when we talk about the love of God, we're not just talking about his actions toward us. We're talking about his affection toward us. Where do you see that here? How is his love described? His love is described here as compassion. Do you see that three-quarters of the way down? That he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. When we pray... If God is our Father, and He is only the Father of those whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray to a God who not only is good to us, but who loves us. He has compassion. This is overflowing love. This is not merely a God who just puts up with us, but a God who has great love and affection for us. Unless you are a cruel, hard-hearted, cold person, You know what this is like. To a small degree, a sliver, a shadow of this. If you have ever felt compassion for somebody who you loved, if somebody you loved was suffering and you you weren't just like, well, that's too bad for them. I don't like that that happened to them, but you actually ached, that you hurt because they hurt. Or when something wonderful happened to them, you you rejoiced, you loved it, even though that thing didn't happen to you. This gives you a sliver of a sliver of a sliver, a shadow of the love of God for those who belong to him, those who are his children. And we see that God's care for you, his willingness to hear your prayers is based on that affection. But we also, when we see that God has this great affection for us, that he's not just merely putting up with us, but he loves us, it's very important for the writers of scripture, for God to say, this has been granted This is a gracious love because we often have compassion and and love for people because of who they are and because of what they've done for us, right? If somebody has been really kind and good to us and then we see that something bad has happened to them, we ache for them. He's saying that's not what is happening here. He does have that kind of compassionate love for us that's overflowing, but that love has been Granted, did you see that a couple of times in this verse? That word is used twice. That he has granted them according to his compassion. And then back up according to all the Lord has granted us. His love is granted. 
His love is from his heart. It's also steadfast. Now, we've all experienced love, or maybe we've shown love or received love. That was just amazing. But that time went on and something interfered. Either that faded, that person's care for us faded. Either it just faded because they just stopped paying attention or we stopped paying attention to them. We don't even, whatever happened, we just drifted apart. Or maybe there was something that happened that broke that relationship. Maybe that person loved you up to a point and then that was it and they gave up on you. Or maybe that happened for you to that person. God's love is seen as steadfast love. Another way of saying this in the Bible is that his love is covenant love. It is covenant love. It is love based on something he has sworn. Not just sworn to be good to you, but sworn that he would love you. Sworn that he has set his affection on you. He has set his affection, his, his love and his heart upon his covenant people. He mentions here, he says here, uh, the, um, he says on the house of Israel, what he's saying here is that his covenant people, there is a special love that he has for his covenant people. Now, there was a time before his covenant people were actually called Israel because he had a covenant people before the man Israel was born. His father Isaac and his father Abraham, and then you have Noah. But God has always had a covenant affection, a special love and care for his covenant people, the people who he says, out of all the earth, you are my children. And this means that his covenant love is persistent. It does not give up. It is not canceled because of the failures of others. This is one that is consistent. It is persistent. It is sworn. And how do you become part of this people? The same way that you've always become part of this people. This is something that is given by grace, but it is received by faith where God makes this incredible promise, an oath that he will be your God, he will be your father, he will be your forgiver, he will be the one who carries you forever. He makes this oath, and you hear that oath, and you trust in it. This is how one becomes part of this covenant people who enjoy his steadfast covenant love. And so we're kind of, Midway through our first point here, right? It says, recount the steadfast, gracious love of God in redemptive history. Because we've seen, look, this is God's heart to his people. This is God's oath to his people. But we also see that this actually works itself out in history. God doesn't just say these things. He's not, we're not just meant to say, well, he promised it. And so we're just going to trust it. No, he's going to show you. It's not simply that I say these things. Remember how I've acted this way. Remember how I've acted this way. So we recount the steadfast, gracious love of God in redemptive history. Now, what is redemptive history? Redemptive history is the story, the history of what God has done to save his people. It is the main story that all the other little stories of the Bible fit into. We get this with, with, with books, with regular books regular novels or something like that. We get that there is a main, a main course of that, that, uh, of that novel. There's a main theme or a thread or an arc. And then there's all the little 
vignettes, all the little things that happen in the middle of it that don't make sense unless you get the main story. And so what we see is we have the, 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 the writers of Scripture constantly call the people of God to remember God's mighty acts in redemptive history. Now, it is good to remember what God has done for you personally. It's good to remember the goodness of the things that he has done for you, from your birth to your, uh, the moment of your salvation, to how he's carried you through, and then even unto death. This is good to remember this. Here, that's not what he's talking about. Here he's saying, in the middle of all those things, while you're doing that, remember where you fit into that redemptive history. Remember those things that he swore to do and that he actually do. The things that took thousands of years for him to show his faithfulness in. If we look at redemptive history, just take a quick glimpse of biblical history. Here's the main points. Remember we did this in hermeneutics class, didn't we? So the main points would be God created the earth. He created it sinless. He created man in his own image. And then we fell into sin. We chose rebellion. We chose eneminess rather than childish, not childish, childlikeness. That's a better way of saying it, right? And then God made a promise that he would bring a savior, someone who would suffer to save his people. And then we have the flood where God, where God destroyed humanity except he saved one family. And then we have the call of Abraham, where he said, I am going to have a people, and I'm going to save them. They're going to be my family. I will save them, and then they will fill the earth. All the nations will be blessed. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then they have this nation of Israel, and this nation of Israel is stuck in slavery in Egypt, and they're there for 400 years, and God sends a savior to them, and then they come out of Egypt, and God does this in a miraculous way, and then they're in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness for 40 years, and he takes good care of them, and he brings them to their land just like he promised, and then while they're in their land, he gives them judges, and they sin greatly, but God keeps coming, keeps bringing them back, and then he gives them kings, and he makes a promise to one of those kings, I will establish your throne, and one of your sons will reign forever. And then the kingdom is divided, Israel and Judah. And then he sends them into exile because of their sin. And he promises, I'm going to bring you back. And then he does bring them back. And he restores them to their land. And then he says, I will bring you a savior. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus lives a perfect life on behalf of his people. And he promises that he will build a people, a nation, a family out of people of all nations. He promises that he will die for their sins and he will rise from the dead. And then he does die for their sins and he does rise from the dead. And then begins the building of a church, a city, a bride, of people of all nations, starting with just 12 people. And then he said, I will return. When that church, when that temple, when that city, when that bride is fully built, I will come back and I will judge the living and the dead and I will bring her into a renewed heaven and earth, which everything is perfect, perfectly suited for me and her to enjoy each other. So dear friends, while we often focus on what's happening in our own lives right now, when, we, when this passage is saying, remember the steadfast love of God that he has to his people, he's encouraging you to take a step back and see, where do I fit in all that God has done in all that God has accomplished, what has happened already and what's coming next. 
Because it's easy to get lost in what's happening in our own lives. Maybe the pain and suffering that we're having, or maybe the wonderful things that we just can't get, uh, we're so distracted from the Lord on. And put yourself in this. What has God done? We are right now in that part of redemptive history where we have seen incredible promises of God come true. He promised to bring a Savior, and he did. He promised that that Savior would die and rise from the dead, and he did. And he promised to build a church out of all nations and to make the Great Commission successful. Where are we right now? We are in Canada. We are a a far way removed from Jerusalem. And look at us, a pretty multi-ethnic group. This morning, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is gathering in all countries in the world to praise their Messiah. Hard to be discouraged when we see how great the Lord has been to a pretty sinful and weak church. Our second point is this. Remember God the Father's compassion. Remember God the Father's compassion. Let's look at verse 8 and verse 9. Let's look at verse 8 and verse 9. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was, uh, sorry, I went too far. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. And so we see here, there's a focus on the fact that God is the father of his people, right? Where do we see this? Well, he's calling them, his people, his children. And so we see here that the father, uh, the God, the father chose these people. We've already seen that he did it by grace. He chose a people who didn't deserve it. He just gives them this gift. You are my children. He chooses them. They hadn't done anything yet. We see here the father's compassion, He became their savior. He became the savior of people who really needed it. We also see that this is a father-child relationship that he is expecting. Did you notice that? Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. So included there is this expectation that when he chooses people, he doesn't just choose to forgive them. He chooses to have a father child relationship with them. There is this expectation that they would act according to his character, that they would act as his children. There is expected this like father, like son kind of a relationship. In Ephesians 1, which Jordan read for us, we see a very similar pattern where the passage talks about God the Father and then God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning passage of Ephesians 1, we see God the Father and his role and is the one who has chosen this family. But I want you to also read the purpose of this. I'm just going to read Ephesians 1 verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Did you notice that we have been chosen? That's the word predestined. We have been chosen not just to be forgiven, but he's also chosen us for adoption. He's choosing us for a father-child relationship, a father-son, a father-daughter relationship. He has chosen us for this. This is helpful in understanding, a helpful to understand what true faith is. Because many times you'll hear, yes, you are saved by having faith, by trusting in Christ. Trusting that Christ is your Savior. You are entrusting yourself, Christ save me. But this is telling us what that salvation you're trusting him for. You're trusting him to go from an enemy relationship with God to a childlike relationship with God. And this is why even though Satan believes the gospel is true, he doesn't want it. He doesn't have saving faith because the last thing that Satan would want is to be treated like God's child, to have an obedient relationship with God, where God disciplines him as a son, where he, there's this expectation. And I'm not going to love you because you are good, but because you are my son, I will expect obedience and I will insist on it. And dear friends, maybe this is your hang-up with the gospel. You would love to be forgiven. You would love to make it past the judgment and live eternally with perfect peace and bliss. But in your heart, you do not want God as your father. You do not want him to have that expectation of sonship or daughtership with him. But you need to see that that is the most foolish thing. There is nothing greater that can be imagined than to be a child of God. A child whom God has great affection for, overflowing compassion. Think of the greatest father that you have ever known. Maybe it is your own father. Maybe it is another father. That is a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of a shadow of the compassion and love that God has for his children. And so for those who are God's children by faith in Christ, when you pray, Pray remembering God the Father's compassion. Our third point is this, remember, the, remember God the Redeemer's suffering. Remember God the Redeemer's suffering. Let's see this in verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Did you see here that he was afflicted? Do you notice that? Now, you might say, if, if, you are a, if you are a theologian, you might say, well, hold on. God cannot actually be afflicted. It's not possible for God to suffer. God can't change. He can't empty these things. So God cannot actually be afflicted. But of course, this is talking about God in a way that we can actually understand. This is speaking about his compassion toward the church, his union with the church how he considers the afflictions of the church as if they were his own affliction. He's not just a, a bystander watching, but like, well, that's too bad. Boy, that's too bad that that happened to you. He doesn't consider it as if it only happened to the church. When those afflictions happen to them, he feels as if it was to him. That's how closely he, the church belongs to him and he to them. One of the greatest ways that this is shown is when the Apostle Paul, before he became an apostle, remember what he was. He was Saul of Tarsus, and he was 
persecuting the church. And he's on his way to persecute the church, and the Lord Jesus stops him in the tracks, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is what it means that in all of the afflictions of the church, that he was afflicted. He wasn't merely a bystander. However, this was fulfilled fully when God the Son took on humanity. He took on a human flesh, human bone, and a human soul so that he was actually able to suffer. And now you have this amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? That was not possible until God the Son took on flesh to be able to suffer instead of the church. He didn't just suffer with them. He suffered instead of them. The beautiful thing of the gospel is that all the afflictions, all the punishments that God has toward the church, all the things that the church deserves, he himself took on the cross. Christ was afflicted instead of the church. This shows the overflowing abundance of his love. Because he wasn't obligated to do this. This kind of love was granted to the church. No one could blame God if he said, I'm going to leave them in their sin. I'm not going to take their punishment. He did this as a free choice that overflowed from his gracious, gracious love. Now we also see here something. I wonder... If you are noticing here, it talks about the angel. Did you notice this? In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved him, or saved them. The angel of his presence. If you've read the Old Testament, you will see that once in a while, there's this very mysterious figure that's called the angel of the Lord, just shows up. And the people who he shows up to, they talk about him being the angel of the Lord, but they also talk about him being God. God said, when the, what the angel Lord says, it's saying God says. And so you have this revelation of God himself, the angel of the Lord. And this is God the Son, before he actually takes on human flesh, showing up. Showing up in redemptive history, showing up to the people of Israel. The technical word for this, if you're interested, is theophany. Even if you're not interested in it, that's the word for it. It's an appearance of Christ before he became human to show that God was actually with the church. This was to show that he was actually with the Old Testament church, that he was not just up in heaven watching from afar and saying, well, it's too bad about your luck. No, that in all of their suffering, in all their affliction, they suffered with him there, that he was there in their suffering. And so, dear church, what we see here is there that your suffering is not a sign that God is not with you. If you are suffering right now, enduring great hardship and pain, and it would be too long to list the ways in which that could happen. If you are suffering today, and your faith is in Jesus, your suffering is not a sign that God is not with you. The theophanies, the the, the angel of the Lord, or Jesus showing up in the Old Testament in a vision in that way was his proof to Israel that in her sufferings, he was with them. Yes, they were suffering, but they were not suffering alone. And then even more so, when Jesus came and took on flesh, that was his proof that Emmanuel, 
God is with you in your suffering. That God is not unconcerned about your suffering. And God is sovereign over your suffering. He has chosen this, not because you are not his child, but because you are. And he is with you in your suffering. And not only that, your eternal suffering, that which you deserve for your sin, that was already taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever suffering you're enduring right now will be considered light and momentary compared to the glory that awaits you when the Lord Jesus returns. Our next point is this. Remember God the Spirit's reconciling. And so we've looked at God the Father, we've looked at God the Redeemer, or God the Son, and now we move to God the Spirit. Remember God the Spirit's reconciling. And we'll see this in Isaiah 63, verse 10. In fact, the rest of this uh, up until 14 is all about the Holy Spirit, but we'll just look at this first verse. Isaiah 63, 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. The rest of this passage actually contains three references to God the Holy Spirit. And when the Old Testament people would have heard about the Holy Spirit, they would have been his invisible presence, his ordinary presence with his people. Because even though there were these theophanies, right, where Christ showed up in a visible way sometimes in the Old Testament, occasionally, most of the time, by far and away, most of the time, God was with him with his invisible presence, with his Holy Spirit. He was there even though they could not see him. But it's interesting here that he is first mentioned in the context of their rebellion. Did you notice that? We learn about the Holy Spirit in this passage in the context of their rebellion. And so what he wants us to think about, when we think of our rebellion, he wants us to think about the Holy Spirit. God's love for his people was not merely a love for a great people. It wasn't even love for a neutral people. It wasn't even a love for people who, like, once he chose them, then they would be good. No, no, no. We see that even after he adopted them, even after he adopts us, there is sin. But he wants us to think of our sin in light of the fact that he has given us his Holy Spirit. Did you notice this? They grieved the Holy Spirit. They grieved the Holy Spirit. They worked against his work. And his work in the Old Testament and the New Testament is to change people's hearts that they would actually act according to the call of God. If God has adopted people as his children, the Spirit of God is the one who shapes us into the image of his Son. And they grieved God's Spirit. It doesn't mean that he gives up. We see this. He actually, the Holy Spirit's the one who makes sure this keeps going after they sin. Did you notice that? And so when you see, even in the New Testament, that passage, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's not saying the Holy Spirit's going to give up on you. That's not at all what he's saying. That's not the motivation. The motivation is to understand that the Holy Spirit is not merely merely a power, not uh, not merely an energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person who loves you who has been good to you. The Holy Spirit is God. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, don't don't sin against gravity. Don't sin against AC or DC currents. 
Don't sin against nuclear energy or the sun's energy. Like that, that doesn't work. Here he wants us to remember that when we are sinning against, when we're sinning, we're not merely sinning against an energy. We're sinning against a person. A person who has loved us. A person who has loved us. He is personal. He is knowable. It's not like ignoring gravity. It's meant to help us to turn away from our sin. So in this coming week, when you are faced with temptation, when you have the opportunity to sin or to obey God, and nobody else would notice, and there really would be no consequences that you can imagine for your sin, even if the only consequence is that you have the Holy Spirit and he would be grieved by that, this is meant to be something that helps you turn away from your sin. Now, we love God because he loved us first. It's not that we don't want to sin against him because we're worried he won't love us. No. We don't want to sin against him because he has already loved us in such an incredible, incredible way. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Not so that he won't leave you, Imagine that the only motivation for a husband to not grieve his wife is, and not to do wicked things against his wife is so that she would not leave him. That's not a great motivation. The motivation is that he would not want her to be grieved because he loves her. This is what is in, intended here. The other piece that is meant to, uh, for us to remember is here is that the Holy Spirit and sin are incompatible. Those who have the Holy Spirit, it is foolish for us to continue in sin because we have been given the Holy Spirit, not just any spirit, but God, the Holy Spirit, who is given to us so that we would be holy. That brings us to our next point. Remember the route our redemption takes. Let's continue reading in verses 12 to 14 who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go into the valley, the spirit of God gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Remember the route your redemption takes. Remember the route your redemption takes. And here, he just takes a, a focus on the root of Israel's initial redemption. They're in slavery. He rescued them from slavery. He said, you are my people. Then he brought them through the wilderness, 40 years of suffering in the wilderness, and then ultimately led them to the land of Canaan, which he called the land of rest. Now, those are things that actually happened. And we're supposed to remember that right now. That just because we have been adopted by God, it doesn't mean that we won't have trials and tribulation. So right now, in a real sense, if you are a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, you have been redeemed. You've been rescued from the enemy. You are no longer an enemy, but you are a son or a daughter. You no longer belong to Pharaoh, the cruel slave master. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You already belong to God. And yet, we're still waiting. In a sense, we're in the wilderness. In the wilderness, 
waiting for the day of our redemption, waiting for the Lord Jesus to take us into the new heavens and earth, waiting for the day in which there will be no more pain or suffering. But in the middle of that, in the middle of that, did you notice the language he uses? In verse 13, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. This is obviously imagery. He didn't turn Israel into a horse as they were walking through the desert. That's, this is just imagery. But the point is that even though they were in the wilderness, he took care of them in such a way that you could say he carried them. Even though there was great suffering in the wilderness, you could say he did it and he brought them through. And he brought them through without a hitch. His plan happened. He cared for his people. And dear friends, that is kind of like us right now. In one sense, when you look back on your life, when the, when the church looks back on this, when they're in heaven and they look back, we will remember all the pain and suffering we had in this earth waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. But there's going to be another sense in which we'll say, wow, did the Lord take care of his church. You look at human history, you look at even just the history of, of the New Testament church from the cross all the way till whenever the Lord comes back and you're like, wow, was he ever really good at taking care of the church? Look at what he did. Look at how quickly he grew the church to a people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And look at even all the trials. He like carried her through them. It's like she floated through them. And we see that the Lord is with us even in our suffering. And he carries us even in our suffering. But dear friends, let us not lose sight of the fact that this suffering is light and momentary. When Israel got out of Egypt, they didn't stay in the desert. They were there for 40 years, but there was an end goal. And how is that end goal described? Like livestock that go in, down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. In a sense, we already have rest. Even now, as we're in the wilderness portion of our journey, right now we have rest. We have rest from trying to earn our salvation. That's already been done for us. That work's been done. God has already accepted that. He proved that he accepted it by raising Christ from the dead. That work has been done. We're not trying to earn our salvation. We already have rest. We already have God as our Father. We already have a Father who is eternal and infinite and who hears our prayers and answers them, not the way that we deserve it, but the way that Jesus deserves it. But we wait a final rest. There will be a day in which we're in the new Canaan, the new land of Israel, and what will be the borders of that land? It's a trick question. There will be no borders. The ends of the earth. No tears, no crying, no suffering, no shame, no pain. Only and only and only rest. Our last point is this, and it's just a short point. Again, it's one of these things where you have these brackets, these bookends. Last point is this. Remember, the Lord saves his people for the praise of his glorious name. Let's read 12 to 14. We're going to get it out of the same passage. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like the, Lord, like the horse in the desert? They did, not, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Remember, bookends are a really important point that the author wants to make for you. The Lord saves his people for the praise of his glorious name. 
You know what's very interesting? That passage that Jordan read for us in Ephesians chapter one, you know what the highlight of those passages, Father, Son, and Spirit, at the end of each of those sections, there is a refrain to the praise of your glorious name, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is as if the Apostle Paul had Isaiah 63 open when he was writing Ephesians chapter one. Why is it important for us to remember that God saves his people for the praise of his glorious name? You know, at first, that seems kind of humbling, doesn't it? That God does, God saves you to, to, to the praise of his glorious name to show how great and glorious he is. In the first sense, we see that we can't boast. If God has set up salvation in a way that anybody who's saved doesn't get to boast, anybody who's saved because, is because Christ is good, not because they're good. Anybody who's saved is because Christ is faithful, not because they are faithful. That's a really humbling thing. Nobody who belongs to Christ, nobody who will be in the new heavens and earth will be able to boast in what they have done. So it's a very humbling reality that God saves us for the praise of his glorious name. But dear friends, this is one of the greatest comforts in the world. This is one of the greatest comforts in the, in the world because what he has done is he has attached his name to his people. That whatever happens to the church, his reputation is on the line. His name is on the line. She, her glory will be based on what he deserves. Now, this is not popular in theology today. We tend to downplay how weak and how sinful we are and how undeserving. You know, we then downplay our unworthiness. But this is actually good news for us. Because if your salvation depended in any way on what you deserved, if your salvation depended in any way, even a sliver on how good you were or how good your resume is, which is another synonym for your name, if your salvation depended in any way on how glorious you were or how good your name was, it would be lost. And you would always worry, have I created a good enough name? Has my life shown to be worthy? When I stand before God in judgment and he considers my righteousness, my record, will there be any holes in it? Dear friends, the good news is that the Lord saves people for the praise of his glorious name. And so that when the church stands before God in judgment, he doesn't look at her he looks at Christ. He looks at how worthy her Savior was rather than how worthy she is. Doesn't this make sense that this is the why the Lord Jesus would start the Lord's Prayer with, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is why the church can pray that with such enthusiasm. Because our eternal hope is not in being worthy but that Christ is worthy instead of us. In a father who chose us as children while we were enemies. In a father who gave us his son while we were enemies. The son who died for us and suffered for us while we were enemies. The spirit who came to us while we were enemies and who stayed with us even after we were saved and showed that we we're still prone to act like enemies. 
and he kept us and he keeps bringing us back to repentance and he holds us and he keeps us praying like watchmen on the city walls, hoping, praying, and calling out for our Savior to return. He makes sure that we will be waiting for Christ when he returns. Dear church, let us pray. Let us pray remembering the steadfast, gracious love of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven,